Welcome to Season 6 of American Political History, The Institution of Slavery, in Ancient Tradition. The institution of slavery is universal throughout human history, with the relief of its oppressiveness only coming in the last 200 years out of 10,000 years of human history. Slavery is a paradigm that almost every human being in history was raised in, was the social institution which they lived their lives under, that of master or slave. Slavery was the way of life. Seldom was the master troubled by their conscience. Slavery was the consequence of yours or your ancestors' societal failures of being conquered or failing at war, of allowing your kin to be captured as someone else's slaves. There are almost no ancient writings that questioned why slavery existed, and far, far more treatises on how to properly manage the slaves of your plantation. Centralized civilization is some 10,000 years old, with the first archaeological records appearing in the lands of the Middle East. The ancient Greeks called this place Mesopotamia, meaning between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. In 3000 BC, a people called the Sumerians settled the southern half of Mesopotamia. The dry, subtropical climate provided hardy earth for agriculture. The Sumerians built complex irrigation systems, which required a large labor force to build and maintain. In 2500 BC, the region had 13 cities that would reach populations of 3500 people each. Each city-state was governed by god-priest kings who ruled over societies with absolute authority. The wealthiest cities had the most slave labor, which allowed for stronger economic war machines, which in turn could capture more slaves. Slaveries came from war, but also from famine and misfortune. When a peasant, who was facing debt, would be forced to sell off one of his sons or daughters into slavery to preserve the limited status of the rest of the family. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire took control of Mesopotamia. King Hammurabi would write down common law. The king listed almost 300 laws dealing with all aspects of everyday life in Babylonia. These were the laws of an authoritarian ruler, the state dictating how you must behave. Many laws pertain to slavery. A runaway slave could be executed or have their ears cut off for punishment and to mark his first strike against his master. If a runaway slave belonging to the state or a private citizen was not brought forth in a timely manner, the citizen assisting a runaway slave shall be put to death. If a slave was injured by someone else, their master had to be compensated for the damages. The Babylonians even have their own version of indentured servants. If an obligation came due and... He sold his services of his wife, his son, or his daughter, or himself, to be bound to service. They were to work in the house of the purchaser for three years and have their freedom re-established in the fourth. The Assyrians would eventually come to power in a common pattern throughout history. They initially fought wars preventing their own servitude to one or more powerful empires. But as they moved forward from prey to predator in terms of power, they would start wars meant to plunder cities of their fortunes and enslave their peoples. The Babylonians would return, and by 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar II was besieging Jerusalem for 18 months, 
When the city surrendered in 586 BC, this was the beginning of what is known in Jewish history as the Great Captivity and lasted some 50 years until the Persians conquered Babylonia in 538, and their king let the Jews return to Jerusalem. Unlike Mesopotamia, life in the Nile River Delta was more secure geographically, protected from invasion by a massive desert to the south in the Mediterranean Sea. And blessed by a slow-flowing river which rejuvenated the soil each year, Egyptian society grew very different from that of Mesopotamia. Egyptian society was structured with a god, pharaohs, who ruled over the great mass of peasants. The peasants were technically not slaves, but lived almost like what would become known as the serfs in the Middle Ages. That is, a peasant was bound to and obligated to the production of an assigned land. And yet these peasants, meager as their lives were, did have some rights. They could not be sold by the landowners, and they owned their own homes, huts in today's standards. This large labor base of peasants would be drafted into the military service between crop seasons, and they would be drafted as labor for communal dam projects and dike maintenance. Because of this large peasant force in Egyptian society, outside of the pharaoh, even the rich owned very few slaves. When an Egyptian army returned with slaves acquired through war, a few lucky were chosen to serve in the homes of the pharaohs. The others were put to work on the great construction projects of the Egyptians. From the writings of Homer and the Iliad, we can understand how the earliest Greek system of slavery worked. After fighting, King Agamemnon took seven women to be his slaves. These slaves did domestic work in the household, washing and weaving clothes, cooking and preparing food. They also attended the king's bath and in his bedchambers. As we shall see, the Greeks are not unique in that the young and pretty slaves were to be accompanying their masters into the master's bedchambers. Greek culture developed into large slave households. Estimations are, of course, hard to obtain, but in the writings of the Odyssey, Odysseus was said to have 50 female slaves and 30 enslaved herdsmen in his care. Early Greek life centered around agriculture. Good harvests and healthy livestock gave wealth. Wealth could be turned into more slaves. The early peripheral slave system was in place where masters would work the fields if needed. They knew their labor. The matriarchs of the household oversaw the domestic work and workers directly. In this early peripheral system, most slaves were women, and their offsprings did not inherit the status of slavery. As the Greek city-states rose in power, they became the predators of the region, raiding other civilizations and pillaging and dragging off slaves. Odysseus tells that he twice sailed to Egypt to pillage their splendid fields and to carry off their women and children as slaves. Implicitly, and assumed, was that they killed all of the opposing men in those raids. In the Mediterranean world, slaves were the universal currency between different kingdoms and fetched a high rate for the exchange on any market. The highest exchange was always for women of beauty or a slave with specialty skills. They might sell for up to 20 oxen worth of money. But an ordinary female slave with no skills, only four oxen. As the Greek civilization emerged from the Homeric era, it developed large trade networks stretching the Mediterranean world. With more complex marketplaces and trade networks, the slave culture shifted to that of centralized forms of slavery. The economy evolved 
from self-sufficient family estates into large plantation holdings that produced large amounts of cash crops, with larger and larger slave populations. These plantations pushed the small farmers further and further into the periphery of Greek civilization. These landless Greek populations would leave their ancestral homes in search of new opportunities. This pressure pushed Greek colonies all over the eastern Mediterranean. They started some of these colonies by conquest, resulting in the reduction of native inhabitants into slavery. Or some of them also started by integration between the existing culture and they formed a new pseudo-Greek culture. But Greeks from all over the Mediterranean started to identify themselves as sharing a nationality. This bond allowed Greeks of all types to share ideas, culture, and gave each other preferential trade. Calling those that lived in the Greek world Hellas, and those that lived outside the Greek world Barbarians. The development of all these Greek city-states and their vast interconnected trade networks opened up their economies to specialization and the production of vastly larger amounts of goods. The Greeks focused their production on finished goods, textiles, pottery, armor, weapons. They built monuments which inspired advanced engineering and mathematics. The advancements in mathematics advanced Greek architecture and shipbuilding. The Greek cultural golden age had arrived by the 6th century BC. Underneath all that glory and accomplishment and democracy was the change of slavery into the most exploitative as possible. Their economic might allowed them to purchase slaves from vast distances so they could be fully exploited within the Greek economy. The Greek economy dominated the Mediterranean region giving incentives for those civilizations on the far-off periphery of the Greek world to sell their slaves that they obtained through wars back to the Greeks, as they would receive in return the best prices for the Greek finished goods. Those civilizations would be receiving the most advanced Greek weaponry, and so they could become powerful within their own regions. Greek prosperity fueled arms races outside of Greek culture. Besides war, the Greek government would, through taxation of rents, force the indebted into bondage. For those with misfortune or mismanagement of their farms, the state comes to collect the past due rents. Debt was generational. The slow, constricting pressure forced farmers to sell off goods, sell off their slaves, then sell a family member, then family members, and then finally themselves. So many Greeks had sold themselves into slavery by 594 B.C., that the Greek government abolished the right of Greek men to sell themselves for debt relief and gave manumission to all Greeks within Greek territories for that debt. Oddly enough to us, all of this slavery was happening at the same time as the rise of democracy in Athens. We would see this as a contradiction in our minds, but Aristotle, one of the greatest philosophers in Greek culture, would argue that it was no contradiction at all, saying that in the universe, some have been selected at birth for subjugation, and that it is better for a slave to be ruled by someone with reason than be ruled by their barbarous heart. A slave was simply at their best when used like a tool and directed by a rational master. In the 5th century, the great wars between the Greeks and the Persians began. The Greek armies prevented the Persians from conquering and controlling the Aegean Sea. This was famously portrayed in the movie 300, where 300 Spartans held the line against 10,000 Persians. 
In fact, there was an Athenian navy fleet oared by slaves, and the Spartans fended off those Persians with 300 Spartan leaders at the head of a thousand-strong army of, uh, you guessed it, slaves. Not exactly how it was portrayed in the movies, where 2,000 years later in a free society, we still omitted the presence of all of those slaves. In the years after the Great War, we now know that the Greeks would reach their cultural zenith, seemingly on top of the world until 431 BC the Peloponnesian Wars broke out between Athens and Sparta. This would create a death spiral of Greek culture. Both sides needed to put more and more of their men into war, and they would be killed. The more men that were spent meant the Greek economy would become more and more dependent on slaves. And purchasing those slaves increasingly meant spending wealth and resources rather than just finished goods. This depleted the once great Greek city-states. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.